Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. I want to thank everyone out there for joining us uh, today. My name is Joel Griffith, and I'm a research fellow here at the Heritage Foundation. It's my pleasure to be hosting today's event on how legislators uh, can curtail a governor's shutdown powers. Before we dive into this discussion, I'd like to remind all of you that we want you to be part of the, uh, the conversation today. So please uh, go ahead and submit your questions uh, throughout the event in the questions box. Be sure to tell us your name, your affiliation, and where you're tuning in from. And we'll be getting to as many of those questions as possible later on in this program. We'll also be sharing a copy of today's uh, conversation. We'll have that recording available um, in about 48 hours following the event. So we have a great panel lined up for you this morning. I'm delighted to invite our speakers to join me on screen now as I tell you a bit about them. So from left to right, uh, we have uh, Carrie Ann Donnell. Uh, she is president and founder of the American Jurist Link, and that helps lawyers advance freedom and the rule of law in courtrooms across the country. Uh, Carrie Ann considers herself to be a recovering lawyer. She spent the first part of her career litigating for liberty in Arizona under Clint Bollock, who is actually now on the Arizona Supreme Court. So American Jurist Link helps litigators strategize and leverage their resources so they can score more wins for freedom. Um, next, um, and I'm looking at the bottom of the screen on this left to right, so apologies for the confusion, but we have uh, Robert Alt. Robert Alt is the uh, Chief Executive Officer of the Buckeye Institute, where he also serves on their Board of Trustees. I'm especially happy to have Robert Alt here because he's in my home state of Ohio. Uh, under his leadership, the Buckeye Institute has seen exponential growth uh, since he took the organization's helm back in 2012. He is also the founder of the Buck Institute's Economic Research Center and their legal center. Uh, here uh, we also have uh, John Malcolm. He's a colleague of mine at the Heritage Foundation. He's a vice president here of the Institute for Constitutional Government and the director of the Mies Center for Legal and uh, Judicial Studies. And last but not least is my friend and former colleague, Jonathan Hanschild. He's the director of the Communications and Technology Task Force at the American Legislative Exchange Council. I know we have a lot of ALEC members on the call, and uh, he has a keen interest as an attorney, as an attorney in uh, privacy rights. So with that, let's uh, dive into today's topic. Uh, many governors over the past uh, four months have relied on emergency powers to issue orders requiring self-quarantining, restricting business activity, restricting uh, gatherings, and, and limiting mobility. Uh, now that we've begun to see some of these shutdown ease in, in most of the country, uh, commerce and, and civic organizations are returning to life. And that's welcome news. And of course, we've seen some, some very nice jobs growth numbers over the last few months. But we still have more than 15 million people that are unemployed. We have a lot of businesses that remain shut. We see many of them that might not come back to life. And now we see uh, a number of mayors... Um, and governors actually threatening or following through um, on, on threats to, to shut down a business or restrict business activities once again. So 
now is really an opportune time for us to really review the mechanics of these emergency orders, to review their constitutionality, and, and to push back to, to mitigate the risk of needless economic damage uh, in the future. So let's uh, start this discussion um, by, by examining, you know, has this happened before? What is the historical precedent of emergency powers being issued by uh, governor's um, offices? And I think we'll let me start with uh, John Malcolm and, and Jonathan Hanschild on this one. Well, look, all, all authority, whether it's the president, Congress, or uh, state legislatures and governors ultimately comes from the Constitution. So the president acts uh, pursuant to express or implied powers under Article Two of the Constitution, and the uh, Congress can delegate authority to him uh, through its legislative uh, uh, you know, capacities uh, under Article One, and they have certain abilities to control what happens in the states through things like the Interstate Commerce Clause uh, and whatnot. But the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution uh, basically gives states police power uh, in order to help regulate the health, safety, and welfare uh, of the inhabitants of those states. Uh, so Robert Jackson, I mean, in, in terms of, uh, of a pandemic, Robert Jackson once wrote in a 1949 case, uh, Terminello versus Chicago, that the Constitution isn't a suicide pact. Uh, and there have been pandemics before. So for instance, there's a very well-known Supreme Court case, a 1905 case, uh, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, in which the Supreme Court upheld a mandatory vaccination law undergirded by criminal penalties in order to stop a smallpox pandemic uh, from spreading. And even though uh, obviously people objected to invasions of their bodily integrity, and even though it, it involved some potential risk by being injected with a small amount of smallpox, that the vaccine could itself uh, give you the disease. But uh, in order to prevent the, the spread of a pandemic, the court said that the states uh, can do that. And that's sort of what the governors and state legislatures are trying to do now. Uh, there are, you know, obviously, if they're going to entrench on a, a fundamental constitutional right, they have to show a compelling government interest in doing that and that they can't achieve that compelling government interest in any less obtrusive way. Uh, but basically, it's, it's the Tenth Amendment and the fact that they are separate sovereigns gives them that authority. Well, with, uh, with that in mind, the parameters that you've laid out, the requirements that there has to be a compelling interest and that uh, it has to be, I guess, nearly tiered or, or as least restrictive as possible, um, what have we seen with some of these uh, orders? I'm thinking of uh, particularly the situation uh, in Michigan where the governor for a time was restricting the uh, um, people within the state from going from their main residence to vacation homes. Um, ha have we seen governors breach um, or potentially breach some of these uh, constitutional parameters on uh, just how far they can restrict uh, constitutionally protected freedoms? Not sure who that question's for, but, you know, yes. First of all, they only have to show a compelling interest if it's entrenching on a fundamental right. You don't have, for instance, a fundamental right to, in, to eat in a restaurant or go to a movie theater. Uh, arguably, you have a fundamental right that would, would uh, to, to travel. Uh, and yeah, look, I, I think in, in terms of closing some businesses is non-essential, uh, like you know, gun stores, uh, so that people can't exercise their Second Amendment rights, or or restricting churches uh, in ways that say department stores are not being uh, restricted. I think you know in, intrudes on a fundamental right. Although the Supreme Court in late May uh, came out with an opinion that you know perhaps gave 
sanction to uh, allowing you know greater restrictions on churches. Uh, John Malcolm, I, I know uh, that you have uh, written recently on some of the, the issues of separation of powers as it relates to state legislatures uh, creating the law and the governor's office um, enforcing uh, the law. So can you dive uh, into that a bit? And other panels, please feel free to, uh, to jump in as well on this. Yeah, so, you know, as I said before, executives derive their authority either from a delegation from the legislature unless they have an express or implied power in their own constitution. For the president, it would be the U.S. Constitution. For governors, it would be the state constitutions. Uh, and so where you have seen pushback from the courts, actually, they haven't pushed back a lot, but when they have pushed back, uh, it has been when governors have tried to do something that goes beyond the parameters of what the legislature in those states have given them to do. So in Texas, for instance, and in Wisconsin, uh, the governors, in, in the, the case of Wisconsin, tried to extend uh, the time to fill out ballots and mail-in ballots uh, for an election. In Texas, they decided to expand the parameters under one, which one could uh, get mail-in ba uh, ballots. Uh, and the governors tried to do this, and the court said, no, that's not a prerogative that you have under our state constitution, and state law doesn't permit you to do that. If the legislatures want to go back and amend the law to give you that authority, they can do that, but you can't unilaterally take that authority. I think I kind of, kind of connected uh, to that. We, we've seen so many of these words that we've never really considered before on a day-to-day -day basis. This idea of allowing essential businesses to operate, but not allowing non-essential businesses to operate, or essential activities versus non-essential. And I think we've seen that too come into play. Well, if you look back over the Easter holiday weekend, we saw that coming into play, but then also even with uh, some, some of the protests that we've seen across the country. Uh, can you, um, can you? I know both both you and also Carrie Ann have, have written and spoken a bit about this. Can you talk about some of these distinctions and the arbitrary nature of that and some of the concerns that you might have with uh, governors uh, trying to determine what's essential and what's non-essential. Ariane, you wanna go first? Sure, this is one that always gets me excited every time. Um, we saw that non-essential essential services distinction at the beginning of the quarantine. Now it's you know super easy lingo for us in our day-to-day -day lives, um, but we're seeing it come up again and become even more nuanced in reopening. Um, so, a lot of states are opening in phases. So now you have even more details, not just essential and non-essential, two different categories, but you've got people uh, pigeonholed into all these different phases. So like in Connecticut, that's my, my favorite one. Um, you've got um, hair salons that are allowed to open before nail salons. And what's odd to me about this is you know, you can and very commonly do see the same cosmetologist, the same customer, and the same salon doing hair and nails. Same place, same people. But the governor says, if you're trimming hair, it's okay. If you're painting nails, all of a sudden it's not safe and you can't do it. And this is even when you can abide by the same social distancing measures, you can um, abide by the same mass restrictions or, or whatever the circumstances may be. Um, the, the big problem with this is grounded in the Equal Protection Clause. Um, you've got those at the federal level, uh, the U.S. Constitution, and you've also got that at the state level and the state constitutions. And that says you've got to treat similar things the same. 
So in the COVID context, hair and nail really is the same thing. Um, you can do both in the same place with the same people, same restrictions. So the governor should be treating them the same under the protection clause. And there has been a lawsuit that we're waiting to see the outcome. Yeah, I guess I would add, look, some of these things seem bizarre and probably have to a lot to do with the, the politics of the individual states. So you've got, you know, landscape architects uh, and medical marijuana dispensaries are essential businesses in some places. But, you know, as I said, you know, gun stores are not, attending church services are not. I actually, look, I, I was um, the first the first COVID-19 patient in Washington, D.C. was the pastor of my church. So I have, you know, some sympathy for this. But nonetheless, uh, you know, I, people have a right to congregate. Uh, they have a First Amendment right to freely exercise, and that includes, uh, you know, in, in congregation together. And I, I see no reason why you would take uh, something that has fundamental rights implicated and apply more stringent conditions to church attendance than you would to, you know, going to a department store. So some some of these some of these distinctions strike me as being arbitrary, and lawsuits have been filed, but trying to get rulings on them when the courthouse is closed in anything like a timely fashion has been difficult. And of course, the Supreme Court, as I as I mentioned, weighed in on a church uh, case, uh, a Pentecostal church out in California, and it was very obvious that the Chief Justice basically said, "Hey, I'm a judge, I'm not a doctor," and you know was very very reluctant to weigh in and, and second guess these emergency orders. You know, John, I'll chime in with the church services and, and especially in these distinctions we're seeing, because if you remember, think back to around Easter, that's when we started to see bans on drive-in church services, which is another totally absurd um, ban. You know, you mentioned the fundamental rights that, that comes with a really high standard for regulation. The government has to have a compelling interest and they have to use the least restrictive means possible to regulate the activity. So, can they ban, you know, face-to-face -face gatherings in churches and elsewhere? The answer so far is probably yes. Um, that, you know, the pandemic is a compelling government interest. The problem where, where you have uh, bans on drive-in church services is it's not the least restrictive means. Um, you know, there was a case um, in Kansas where uh, cars were parked and the cars themselves were socially distanced. The cars were six feet apart from each other and everybody had their windows rolled up and the pastor was preaching from the parking lot. And um, in that case, the um, law enforcement showed up and threatened to fine everybody if they didn't go home. Um, so you've got to use the least restrictive means. You can't just lump in um, all different kinds of religious um, activities and uh, come out with a ban You've got the compelling interest, but you have to have it really narrowly, narrowly tailored. Let me make one other point, actually, about that, because another thing, of course, has happened since then, which is, you know, the killing of, of, of George Floyd and all of the protests that we're seeing in, in the streets. Well, the police are not exactly enforcing the social distance edicts that have come down in those states. And you made the very good point that when it comes to enforcing laws, who's supposed to do, do so even-handedly? So another factor that comes in is like the church will go, you know, look, if you had been applying the social distancing regulations across the board, you might have a decent argument. But what about that group over there in the public square trying to tear down that statue? I don't see anybody enforcing the social distance regulations there. And that may come into play in some of these cases. Yeah, and, and, and to your point, uh, Carrie, you uh, talked about the, the importance uh, under the Equal Protection Clause of, of treating 
I'm all equally. I remember being being home a few weeks ago, and uh, I walk into the Walmart, uh, and and you see the sign. Uh, you can you can have occupancy. I think the Super Walmart was 1,200 people based on people per square foot, and you're usually there for about an hour. People people in that uh, in my in my in my hometown, that's where they do all the shopping. And my dad goes to uh, a fairly large uh, church, and for a while they could not gather, and it wasn't uh, as if they were even uh, this this facility that he gathers in holds about a thousand people, so they could have done social distancing requirements, had about 200 people in there, and had roughly the same amount of people per square meter as you had at Walmart, and it simply wasn't allowed. And yet, the one activity was actually a constitutionally protected freedom versus shopping, which is not necessary does not necessarily boil down to a fundamental human right. <laughs> So I'd like to maybe segue over uh, to um, to Ohio um, because number one we have uh, Robert Alt kind enough to be here with us, but also because I've spent so much time in Ohio over the past uh, few months. You know, my my dad has a small business, has several hundred uh, small business owners as clients, and I asked him the other day, um, actually this about a month ago, what's it looking like uh, with with your clientele, and he told me based on the number of closed checking accounts, he estimated that 18% of his clients actually had already, it looks like gone under permanently. So that was a, a jarring moment for me personally um, to know that so many of those small business owners in, in that area in Southwest Ohio might not make it. Uh, so uh, in Ohio, the governor put most of the, much of the state under a, a lengthy and stifling economic shutdown. Can you uh, tell us some of uh, what you saw, some of the interplay between the governor's office, um, the state legislature uh, and, and the health commissioner there, Robert? Sure. So, I mean, uh, uh, you know, just laying the foundation, you know, how this all works, the legislators uh, uh, in years gone past had passed the emergency statutes in question, and those laws gave the governor the authority to declare the, an emergency uh, in the case of COVID. Once the emergency is declared, uh, the legislature gave to the director of the Ohio Department of Health the, and I'm quoting from the statute here, ultimate authority. Uh, end quote, in matters of isolation and quarantine. Um, to say that this is extraordinarily broad language would be a bit of an understatement. Under this theory, I suppose that God himself is apparently subject to the determinations of the Ohio Department of Health. But you know, it's under this uh, authority that they issued the, the shutdown orders. Now, again, I, I, I think sort of operationally, how does that work? The, the the director of the Ohio Department of Health is appointed by and subject to removal by the governor. So I think ultimately the governor uh, you know, is responsible for the policy that comes out of the Department of Health. Uh, but uh, uh, the, it, in terms of how the authority is vested, it's vested in that particular uh, in that particular department. Um, and how, how did this operate? You know, I think Ohio was pretty aggressive in terms of closing things early on. We have a, a, a huge uh, uh, a sporting event here. The Arnold, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger sort of got his big break in Columbus. And so he has for years sponsored, uh, you know, a weightlifting and bodybuilding competition, which, you know, brings in uh, uh, competitors from around the world. Um, uh, to Columbus every year. Uh, it, it attracts, I think, over 100,000 uh, participants and spectators. And the, go the governor went ahead and closed down uh, uh, the, the Arnold to spectators uh, 
when there wasn't even a single case of COVID that had been identified in Ohio. So I, th I think that's an example of you know, sort of how aggressive and early the, the state engaged in various shutdown maneuvers. So, uh, you know, d despite the fact that that uh, pain was so extensive, was, was, was so broad, and, and despite the fact it, it occurred so early on, uh, the legislature, despite all of the rumblings, uh, from what I understand, was ultimately not able to, to, to get the supermajority needed to, to override a governor's uh, veto on ending the more draconian aspects of the shutdown. Um, what do you think hey, that uh, the hurdles... Uh, Jonathan what here from Alex. Uh, Jonathan here from what? Alex. Sorry for the delay, but having some internet issues at work. So glad to finally be able to join and listen in. Thank you, and we welcome your uh, your contribution as well, Jonathan. Sorry to sorry to hear you had those those difficulties. Uh, so so in the Ohio situation, with the, the, what, what was the, what were some of the main impediments in the legislature not being able to override um, that veto? I presume that many of these legislators are hearing from their constituents yet at the end of the day did not cast that vote. Yeah, no, I mean I I think part of it you just need to look at the facts on the ground in Ohio. So the uh, the governor and the Ohio Department of Health. Uh, you know, while the shutdown and uh, was devastating to businesses and employees, and was certainly extraordinarily broad in its scope, uh, it wasn't marked by the insanity that you saw in Michigan and some other states. The governor and the Ohio Department of Health did not close church services. Uh, you know, they recommended it, but uh, churches were still allowed to operate. They didn't close gun stores. They didn't prevent people from going to their vacation homes, or make irrational distinctions between hair and nail salons. Uh, you didn't have DeWine claiming that protesters of the shutdown were killing people, then ignoring, lauding, or participating in other protests that he preferred, like some governors. Um, as I said, Ohio closed early, but the governor actually took steps to reopen fairly early, uh, you know, as the country went as well. Uh, and, you know, and and I think you know perhaps the the uh, the point that sort of crystallizes this is during the shutdown there was a popular. Uh, you know, sort of meme of wine with the wine, where people, you know, would pour a glass of wine and tune in for his daily briefings. You can still buy wine with the wine glasses online if you're looking for one. Um, and so, I mean, just to put none too fine a point on it, his popularity was through the roof. During the shutdown, he enjoyed an 85% approval rating, which at the time was the highest of any governor in the country. Uh, you know, so I think, quite frankly, why is it that the legislature couldn't muster a supermajority? Because the governor enjoyed so much popular support, both personally and for his policies. You know, uh, again, there were certainly businesses and employees who were hurt by him. There was, there were protests and individuals who were seeking to reopen. But I think the broad swath, you know, actually, he appeared reasonable, and so they were will more Ohioans were willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, I think, you know, as time went on, people became tired of the shutdowns, but, uh, you know, it was about that time that he began taking the efforts to reopen. Uh, you know, and I think that this is the general theme as we're talking about what legislatures can do. Ultimately, of course, politics is the art of the possible, and politics guides the process here, particularly with regard to the legislative response. Um, you know, in those, I think you've seen a lot more uh, angry response in states where, the uh, where the governors have taken these kinds of irrational uh, steps of closing churches and 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 constitutionally violative steps of closing churches, closing gun stores, 
uh, discriminating more blatantly. I mean, I, I still don't get me wrong. I think you know there there were some serious mistakes that were made with regard to you know they certainly did keep early on to the essential non-essential distinction, which we had encouraged the administration to jettison, and they ultimately did. But I think that did some substantial damage to businesses that could have operated safely during the shutdown, uh, but were not permitted to do so. Thanks for that, Keller, on, on that, uh, Robert. Um, what, what do you think uh, were, were some of the most, uh, I guess, some of the most beneficial actions that state legislators took, uh, separate and apart from the attempts to to actually end the shutdown legislatively. What do you think were some of the, the best strategies that worked uh, with those legislators in getting to the governor's office? Sure, I, you know, I, I think you've got a number of those things that are still in process, but I, I think are promising. So, you know, as I mentioned, despite the fact that, the gov that Governor DeWine didn't close churches, other states obviously did. Uh, and, you know, I think there was a genuine concern among the legislature that a future Ohio governor or a future director of the Ohio Department of Health could uh, take more drastic and more uh, constitutional dubious measures. And so the Senate, uh, for instance, passed an amendment to a bill making clear that the ODH of the Ohio Department of Health does not have the authority to close churches uh, in a pandemic. So that, you know, I think that, that uh, that's been sent over to the House. I think that that's got a reasonable shot. Um, the House and Senate both passed provisions that would remove criminal penalties and reduce fines for violation of health orders, uh, and that's been sent to the governor's desk. Uh, and the House passed a provision that would assert oversight uh, of extended quarantines and shutdowns through a joint committee, and the Senate has a version of that legislation that they're considering, you know, essentially making sure that the legislature is involved in this process, uh, which, again, I, I think we'll talk a little bit more about what states can do here in a bit, but I think that, you know, making sure that uh, as we're looking at these sorts of extended shutdowns that, that there are greater political checks are among the most important things that can be done by a legislature. Excellent. Yeah, I think I think now now is a good time actually to go ahead and segue into um, in, the ways in which legislators can revise the existing statutes in a way that can generate bipartisan support and possibly even the support of the governor's office. Uh, I think uh, Jonathan Hanschild, I know you are uh, on the the line. I'd like to get your impact, your input on this as well, because I know you've written quite a bit about this. What should state legislators be doing now? to mitigate future economic calamity from expansive uh, orders. Let's get, let's get into that. And I, I really would like the input of all four of you on this one. Yeah, again, uh, thanks, for, thanks for the question. That's a, a good question, and I've devoted a fair amount of thought to that. And again, sorry for all the technical difficulties uh, earlier. The Internet at work just decided to uh, give up um, and was working through that. But when we look at some of the proposed solutions, one of the, some of the solutions. We also have to look at what some of the large scale problems are. So when we're talking Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and other states, some of the problems that exist, exist because the legislation is substantially similar. A lot of states back in the mid to late 70s revised their emergency management acts based off of a model that was kind of drafted by the Council of State Governments. The Council of State Governments, when you do some of the research, you find that the purpose was to give governors more authority, was to 
streamline the process so that it was a one-size-fits-all for every emergency. So now looking at the different types of emergencies we're seeing now, we're seeing some potential solutions kind of suggest themselves. One of those solutions, perhaps key among them, um, is really twofold. The first is to recognize that not all emergencies or disasters are created equal. And what do I mean by that? Well, we're seeing social unrest with some rioters on the edge of, of protests creating havoc. Well, you don't want to handle a riot the same way you handle a pandemic. Yet the legislation in states that allows governors and, and local governments to respond is the same legislation. So key point number one, start narrowly tailoring the laws, the emergency management laws for specific types of emergencies. You may want to give governors or local law enforcement a substantial amount of authority to uh, put down riots for a very limited amount of time. But if you have a pandemic or you have something that's longer term, you may not want to provide them the same amount of authorities. And the same is true, you may not want to provide the same authorities if there's a flood or if there's a wildfire or tornado. The second part is when you have a longer term emergency, like a pandemic, you have to, as many of the speakers have already talked about, you have to narrowly define the authorities of the governor and make it very clear to society and to the courts that certain things are to be protected, such as individual and constitutional liberties. Uh, along with the fact that states should, in certain situations, be required to follow laws that exist for specific purposes. So one of the things that we're seeing in the pandemic is that most states have what I'll call communicable disease laws. And those dis communicable disease laws are created for such a time as this to deal with highly contagious and, and communicable diseases. And guess what standards states are not following? communicable disease laws. So those solutions should also make it clear that state laws designed for emergencies such as this still apply and that there is no excuse for the government not to follow it. Yeah, th thank you for that, uh, Jonathan. So it sounds like we've got a, a big problem here of really some of the statutory language being quite vague and there not being a very a clear enough difference drawn between emergency powers, communicable disease laws, and there's many governors that have taken some expansive liberties with communicable disease laws by interpreting that language more broadly than the powers given them under the overarching um, emergency powers. Do, do I have that right? Um, it's actually kind of backwards. They're taking very broad and vague, vague language from the emergency management acts and ignoring the communicable disease laws. So, uh, for example, a lot of the model um, emergency management acts have a provision in there that allows governors to control, quote, ingress and egress, end quote, to disaster areas and, quote, the movement within the disaster area, end quote. And when you're talking about shutting down non-essential businesses, when you're talking stay-at-home orders, that's the specific provision governors cite to afford the authority to do it. They completely ignore the communicable disease laws, which often have language to the effect, or not just to the effect, but that state 
that only, quote, an individual, end quote, that's confirmed to have the disease may be quarantined or isolated, or, quote, an individual or individuals that are reasonably suspected of having come in contact with an individual confirmed to have the disease, end quote. So just based off the statutory language, you have an individual. You do not have groups of people. You do not have society. And the second part is there has to be a reasonable belief that they have the disease or been exposed. So you can't just quarantine or isolate healthy people. If governors were following their state quarantine laws, their state communicable disease laws, they wouldn't be allowed to issue these stay-at-home orders. So that's when I go back and say that state emergency management acts should be very clear about the authorities of the governor and very clear about what, what laws they can ignore or suspend and very specifically state, for example, in a pandemic, that the state must follow the communicable disease law. Yeah, thanks, thanks for that clarification, uh, Jonathan. Uh, I, I know that uh, one of the one of the biggest problems that we've seen across the country with emergency orders that governors will issue it. There's a set expiration date of say 30 days. I think we saw this in Pennsylvania, uh, and because of the way the 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 empowering legislation is drafted, the governor can then go ahead and just reissue another emergency orders and just uh, really pyramid these orders one after another, even though they're <laughs> technically only supposed to be temporary. I know that uh, John uh, Malcolm, you have. Um, talked about the need to, um, to have affirmative legislative approval of these orders. Can you talk about uh, what that means, what that would look like? Well, I, I want to respond a little bit to what Jonathan was just saying, which is it's in order to do with the communicable disease law that you just talked about, uh, you'd have to have extensive and probably mandatory contact tracing, which has its own set of issues and it's a little bit difficult when you're dealing with a pandemic where somebody could be exposed and actually a carrier and be completely asymptomatic but everybody they come into contact with is potentially impacted in, in you know in terms of lethality so a balance has to be has to be drawn but you know i i absolutely agree uh that if you open things up and you give these incredibly broad delegations of authority in terms of either how to act or under certain circumstances or the ability to keep renewing uh, uh, emergency orders without in any way, shape or form having to come back to the legislature to have it ratified. Uh, again, you're going to have problems and that's at the, the, the federal level too. I mean, there, there's you know, the Federal Emergencies Act where there are emergencies that are supposed to be under the statute temporary in nature, but they are renewable by the president and there are literally emergencies that have been extant now for decades that people don't even really know about uh, since the time that the Federal Emergencies Act was, uh, was enacted. Uh, so uh, legislatures need to flex their muscles more. If they are concerned about this, they need to be robust in terms of reining things in. I'm have a, a, I realize that this is a delicate balance because sometimes legislatures can be divided, uh, they can be sclerotic and, you know, executives are there to be able to act quickly and as as hamilton said in the federalist papers with verb and dispatch uh so but there needs to be a balance and there need to be people need to be attuned to the authorities that they grant to the executive and and whether it applies in this situation or that situation and at the end of the day uh unless something is in a state constitution that gives 
a governor authority to act regardless of what the legislature has to say. The legislature is the one that controls all of the cards. I, I just wanted to, to add something to what John said there, which is when you talk about sort of uh, uh, the, the long-term effects, I think the first rule for the legislators has to be first do no harm. And, and you see this with regard to these emergency measures that become permanent. Uh, and I think the classic example on this is rent control in New York. Uh, and rent control in New York City in particular. Uh, rent, rent control, uh, there was, uh, I believe it was actually federal legislation which permitted rent control in World War II. The state of New York uh, implemented a rent control measure following that, extending the provision. Uh, and there were a series of extensions after World War II, all citing back to World War II through the 60s and forward. Well, it came out in 2019, uh, they re reauthorized rent control in New York City, harkening back at least in some measure to the original rent control measures and to the crisis of World War II. I'm guessing that they've addressed the housing shortages from World War II by now in New York City, but that's still ultimately the justification. And so you want to be careful about these temporary stopgap measures that are put into place. You know, I'll give you one example of you know something that raised grave concern here in Ohio, uh, and and you know that actually caused the Buckeye Institute has filed a lawsuit over it. Ohio has the most bizarre uh, and complicated local income tax taxation system in the country. Uh, you know, there are some states that have a commuter tax for New York City or so forth. Uh, in the state of Ohio, there are, are literally hundreds of different taxing jurisdictions. Uh, it is permissible to be taxed both where you have local income tax, both where you live and where you work. Uh, and so based upon this, uh, it, you know, we had two conflicting measures that went into effect. The governor, uh, through the Ohio Department of Health, issues an order which says, you shall not enter your workplace. Uh, you know, if you're able to, you should work from home. That's order number one. Uh, order number two, which actually was issued by the legislature, says for the purposes of uh, local income taxation, you will be deemed to have worked uh, in your office during the shutdown. Uh, even and that applies even if the, the local income tax that you would pay in in your office is higher than what you would have paid uh, from working at home. Well, as luck would have it, uh, the Constitution does not al allow legislators to tax based upon the let's pretend theory of where work was performed. Uh, and so Buckeye has filed a lawsuit challenging that. But you know, part of the reason I was explaining to a reporter just a little bit ago, one of the big reasons we did that. It's important for the initial principle, but it, it really goes back to this rent control in New York theory. If the government is allowed to tax based upon let's pretend, if we remove any sort of constitutional limitations on the nexus of, you know, sort of any sort of fiscal, act, fiscal uh, actions taken by the employee, then, you know, Katie, bar the door uh, in terms of what you'd be able to permit in the future. Right, that, that's, uh, that, that's shocking, uh, Robert, on, on both, both accounts, New York City and that, and that case. Uh, I want to take a, a pause here uh, just because we're at about 20 till and, and make sure that uh, people have an opportunity to submit questions. We do have a, a few in the queue and actually a, a few actually uh, uh, appear to tie into this last component uh, that uh, would be great to um, dive into. Um, but as a reminder, we have the instructions on how to submit the question. If you go to the right hand side of the screen, you can submit those questions in the question box and we'll try to get to those. Uh, I know uh, we've touched briefly on 
plan B, right? If, if legislatures uh, don't move forward and revise these statutes, can we work through the courts um, in some of these instances? I know you've mentioned a few of these uh, cases, uh, uh, Robert, but, but on constitutional grounds, we've seen legislators in Wisconsin, for instance, actually sue in the state Supreme Court um, to block a, a shutdown order that that they said exceeded constitutional bounds, and, and they actually won. I was wondering if uh, uh, maybe Carrie Ann could talk about the details uh, of that Wisconsin case, um, and what are some of the important takeaways that state legislators elsewhere um, should learn um, from what happened in Wisconsin? Yeah, Joel, I'd love to kick that one over to Jonathan if he's still on the line. I know he's had some thoughts on this and would love to hear from him first. Yeah, I'm still here. Um, the Wisconsin Supreme Court case is a little unique. It's different from a lot of other state decisions that we're seeing. And that's because the state Supreme Court really didn't reach the constitutional question. Wisconsin has something of a unique uh, procedure for emergency orders. The governor can still promulgate them, uh, promulgate emergency rules. The Secretary of Health can still promulgate rules, but they have something of a state level of uh, administrative procedures act that requires notice and comment on an expedited basis for certain types of rules to take effect. The legislature uh, basically alleged and the state Supreme Court accepted that the stay-at-home order and the order shutting down non-essential businesses, and it was one order, was in fact a rule and should have been gone through the state emergency uh, procedures act. The state Supreme Court agreed and so struck down the struck down the order on the basis that the governor and the Secretary of Health failed to follow the proper procedure. What does this mean for states is a good question. Well, they may want to take a close look at the model from Wisconsin because that provides the governor some flexibility and it also provides the legislature a opportunity to kind of check the authority before it happens. Now, the Supreme Court also reached a couple other statements and, and again in Wisconsin that could be used in other states, uh, citing the fact that the emergent, the purpose of the Procedures Act, the purpose of promulgating emergency rules is because there may not be time for a whole of government response for the legislature and the governor to work together. Legislature may be out of session. Uh, it may be such an exigent, um, exigent emergency that there's no time for legislation. And so that's when the governor's authority in Wisconsin is at its zenith, at its maximum. The and Joel, I, I think, um, Jonathan, let me jump in and, and comment yeah, on this. Yeah, go ahead. Just broadly, you know, these procedural challenges in the courts tend tend to do much better than the than some of the constitutional challenges. Um, courts like really well defined, um, simple, easy to follow rules, right? If if you ask a judge at a trial court or even the court of appeals, sometimes at the state supreme court level, they don't like the pressure of having to weigh a constitutional right against a public health concern. They hate those decisions. It makes them very uncomfortable. Um, and, you know, they would much rather just leave the status quo and defer to whatever somebody else has ruled. They're not making this these life and death decisions or, or striking things down. But when you ask a judge 
you know, did the, did the governor break the law because he didn't follow notice and comment rulemaking procedures? That's really easy. Um, that's, that's very easy and simple. A judge is much more comfortable saying, you know, I'm not saying anything about constitutional rights or public health or how bad this virus is or how overblown this virus is. I'm not making those judgment decisions. All I'm saying is the law says you have to give notice. The governor didn't give notice. Therefore, uh, you know, the thing's invalid. Um, and so we definitely see um, procedural limits as a really strong protection for, um, you know, that can be enforced. It has a lot of teeth. Um, and, and that's something that our, our um, judges are much, much more likely to uphold in some of these really tough cases. You know, uh, Jonathan, um, Alec has quite a bit of a model policy on many different issues. Is this an area um, that uh, there's already some models that uh, you could provide, or is this something that uh, you're working on for the future? So we're working on it right now. We have our annual meeting next week, um, and thanks to the virus, it will also be a virtual uh, format. There are a number of policies that have been introduced by state legislators on this topic. We have a uh, statement of principles to inform emergency management act reform. We have a draft, and these are all draft, uh, draft um, emergency power reform act. Uh, other task forces are taking a look at this very specifically, a resolution on overcriminalization and pandemics. So this is a topic that is of great interest to state legislators. State legislators, encouragingly, are trying to come up with solutions, and they're trying to come up with the solutions that are balanced, recognizing that the governor does, in fact, have a role, and that the governor can do certain things better than the state legislature can and should have certain authorities, but that also that there should be certain limits. And I think what you're going to see based on some of these conversa conversations, some states will go the legislative route and maybe work with governors or put pressure on governors. Other states will go the state constitutional amendment route. And what we will see in the coming year and years is a host of solutions coming from state legislatures, all of which are at least a step forward, many of which are really good, thought out, measured approaches. So the short answer to your question is yes, Alec is considering it. People can right now go to our website and look under um, specific task forces. So the website is alec.org, and the draft model policy is published on the website under the Homeland Security Task Force, Civil Justice Task Force, and Criminal Justice Task Force. Uh, and I believe the Federalism and International Relations Task Force has also published some. Okay, great. Good, good to hear. Uh, we have a few uh, questions, and these actually revolve on the, the legal uh, uh, constitutional law front. Um, one is in regards to uh, the takings clause of the Constitution. And for some of the non-lawyers that might be um, on the call, this simply says that if government uh, takes private property, um, it has to be done with just compensation. And there are a whole lot of other guidelines in there that it has to uh, be for, for public use, for instance. Uh, but with these regulations that have... Uh, that have been imposed by governors. There's no, no doubt that those regulations have caused some businesses to go bankrupt. Um, it's also caused some businesses to lose revenue. It's caused business valuations in general for many sectors to go down. Uh, 
does that count as an actual takings, a takings to the extent that a business owner could actually sue and win damages from the state for the imposition of those regulations? I'd like to open this up to um, actually to, to, to all, all four of you who, who are attorneys on this call. Huh. Well, all right. let, me, let me jump in on that one. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, the answer is probably no. And here is, which is why people who have been filing these suits have, have been losing them. And I'm, what I'm about to say, I'm not saying I agree with, but this is what the law is. So the Fifth Amendment takings clause requires just compensation if property is taken for a public benefit. So, you know, I want to build a government center of some kind and I condemn your house or put in a roadway, I condemn your house, I have to pay you just compensation. There is a whole other body of law uh, referred to as a public necessity, uh, which is not considered to be a public benefit. Uh, so there's, you know, you can have this in, on the private sector too. So for instance, if I'm uh, uh, walking along and a big storm comes along and I seek shelter on your property, that was a private necessity brought on by circumstances and uh, you can sue me for damage if I damage your property, but you can't go after me for trespass. In the same way, if a government, if a, a state official takes property, if you will, at a public necessity, they fire tear gas into your home and destroy your home in order to flush out, uh, you know, criminals that are in your home. They destroy your home in order to set up a fire break or a flood break uh, to prevent a fire or flood from spreading into uh, a town. That is not considered a taking. And similarly, there are actually cases on this where there are uh, animals that have communicable diseases and they destroy a farmhouse that had the animals in it in order to you know, get rid of the disease, that is not considered a taking. And so all of these cases that have been brought so far, courts have been looking at these and saying, well, yeah, your property was taken. Maybe they ought to pay you some money because it's the right thing to do. But it was not for a public benefit. It was done out of public necessity to prevent the spread of a pandemic. John, I'll talk to you. Um, Joel, the other problem with um, these uh, filing these types of takings cases is these aren't your basic level takings, right? You think the government comes in and takes your property, meaning, John, like you said, they set it on fire or they literally take it because they're building a road or they take title to it. The government isn't doing that, right? The government isn't coming in and taking somebody's restaurant they are regulating somebody's use. They're saying, you can still have your restaurant. You just can't open it. You just can't use use it. So you're basically, they're, they're regulating you out of the value of your property. And that's a type of taking called regulatory takings. And it's an incredibly high standard under the law. Um, you know, the, I think there are cases saying, um, you've got to, you've got, the government has to, to regulate um, or deprive you of 99.4% of the value of your property before the government's going to, um, or before the court's going to order the government to actually compensate you for it. And that we don't have that here. I mean, if a restaurant can have carry out services and not dine in services, you know, we, we can't say that the government has taken 99.4% of the value of, the, of their property. You know, if a gym can open at you know, 25% capacity, you're not reaching that really, really high threshold of saying the regulatory taking is essentially a taking under the constitution. And that's that's another problem. Um, you know, Joel, you, your, your question was, 
um, can you um, can you win these cases? And John, your short answer was no. My answer would be I wish and maybe someday. <laughs> so we're trying to push the law um, a little bit more in that fairness area, but we're pretty far from it right now. I, I think that this, you know, uh, points out sort of the larger issue and, and something that's useful in terms of framing things for the legislatures, which is to say, again, if you if you look at the the broad swath of the cases that have been brought, you know, you begin with, you know, sort of a pretty steep hill when you're challenging government discretion. If if the if the governor or the Department of Health or whoever is issuing the regulations is acting based upon delegated discretion that's given to them. You know, the bottom line is, you know, looking at, for instance, the case, uh, you know, that went up the to the Supreme Court with regard to the churches, judges are going to be very nervous about inserting themselves in the place of the legislature or the governor or whoever it may be in terms of making the determination on the shutdown. Uh, you know, they're far more likely to, to go ahead and enter a, a judgment against an order if it clearly violates a bright line standard. You went beyond 30 days. You regulated uh, a class of activities beyond those which you were authorized to do. Those are ones where you're going to more likely win uh, in those cases. So, you know, as the legislators are looking at these questions, putting in those kinds of guardrails, putting in the temporal guardrails, putting in the legislative checks where, okay, if it's going to go on in perpetuity, you need to have you know, some sort of a political de democratic check on the exercise of this authority. You know, and again, that doesn't say that in proper circumstances, you wouldn't have continuing quarantine orders. Uh, indeed, I think Ohio is the example of why that would work. You actually had popular support for the governor. And if you have popular support, then they continue. When the popular support wanes, then this provides a check to be able to actually make sure that, uh, that, that proper constrictions are followed. Yeah, th thanks for all that, Cole. And I think that really highlights the importance of not uh, just completely relying on the courts to remedy um, so some of these economic problems, it really shows the, the importance of, of legislatures abiding by their responsibility to actually create the law and do so in a way that is so clear um, that a, a governor has to abide by those constraints and that a court, if they look at it, can more easily make that determination instead of wading into um, political uh, controversies. Legislators have a, just a huge responsibility uh, on that. Unless it's a contract dispute, if you're waiting for courts to step in to protect your property rights, you're probably barking up a wrong tree and going a legislative route is probably a better way to go. We actually we have another uh, constitutional law question. We just have time for a few, uh, probably maybe two more here. Um, so we, we've talked a bit uh, about um, the, the hurdles that a governor or a legislator has to meet anytime that they're restricting a fundamental constitutional right, such as um, the freedom of religion or the freedom of speech. Yes, there are instances in which that right can be restricted, but it has to be a compelling government interest. It has to be nearly tailored in the least restrictive uh, means possible. But what about some of these other uh, rights that we enjoy as Americans, the right to, to uh, run a business, to engage in commerce, to go shopping? Uh, when it comes to those liberties that we enjoy um, do the protections that we enjoy um, are are they do they are they elevated to the same level um, is uh, can, can we talk about that a bit the freedom of commerce the freedom to run your business the freedom to go shopping well Carrie Ann before I think was saying that there is no constitutional right to shop and I think that's right there's no constitutional right to to shop I mean you've got you know sort of freedom of movement 
Uh, but states, Congress has the authority to regulate interstate commerce, and states have the authority to regulate intrastate commerce. And if they're doing so in order to protect public health, their power is probably at its zenith. Uh, and indeed, the courts have basically said that Congress can even regulate intrastate uh, commerce, except for under the most narrow of circumstances. So yeah, look, uh, there are other rights that are explicitly stated, freedom of assembly, petition your government for redress of, of grievances. Uh, even those can be curtailed. Whatever constitutional right there is to shop, I think is uh, very much at, uh, imperiled if there is a pandemic going on. I suppose what I, that one thing I would add to what John has said is, you know, there are many of us uh, in the freedom interest law movement who have lamented for decades the short shrift that economic liberty gets before the Supreme Court. I mean, there's sort of a hierarchy of rights, and regrettably, economic li liberty does not tend to get uh, good protection for some of the reasons that John and uh, and Carrie Ann have already discussed. Uh, you know based upon, for instance, in the regulatory taking context, the degree of taking that has to occur before you could even, you know, sort of uh, essentially state a claim. And so you begin, you know, sort of in on an ordinary day when there's not anything going wrong, you're going to have a tough day in court. Uh, but when the government gets to play, you know, sort of the card of we're protecting the people from a pandemic, you know, at that point, you know, I, I, I hearken back. I was a, a student of uh, Richard Epstein's at Chicago, and you know, a, a noted libertarian. And, you know, he had the statement in certain contexts when you're fighting the government, the rule is what Lola wants, Lola gets. And uh, I, I think, you know, with regard to dealing with, you know, sort of. Uh, economic liberties during a pandemic, regrettably that, you know, I'm not saying it should be the rule, but in far too many cases, it is the rule. Thanks for that. And uh, another, uh, I think we have time just for one more question. Uh, I know we have, we have so many uh, to get to, um, but are, are we at the point uh, with any of these orders where civil disobedience, nonviolent civil disobedience is, has been warranted uh, in your opinion? Well, uh, you know, I never like to tell anybody to violate a law, but, you know, sometimes civil disobedience, if you're prepared to, to pay the consequences of being civilly disobedient, can be an effective political tool. And you are seeing uh, certain church services, for instance, that are saying, you know, look, I, I understand that I'm going to be violating this by gathering at a church service with my uh, my fellow parishioners, and if you want to haul me off to jail, okay, you can haul me off to jail. I'll, I'll pay the consequences of that. Um, you know, it's, so long as you're prepared to pay the consequences of it and it's nonviolent, then you can end up having potentially an effective political message. It is a way of getting your, your word out there in the same way that the people who are in the streets now who are peacefully protesting or having their voices heard, and so long as they're not rioting and looting, uh, that presents a whole different kettle of fish. Let me give an example of uh, of a case where I think it certainly was justified. Uh, there were out in Idaho, there was a prohibition with regard to gatherings that included protests, you know, peaceful protest gatherings, even if precautions were taken. Uh, and you know, there were there was a, 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 a public policy organization that arranged for a protest rally. I believe it was at the state house, uh, and you know, th this was considered an act of civil disobedience. But I think that's it's one that that is 
you know, broadly protected by the First Amendment uh, to the Constitution. I think, you know, once again, it's not permissible uh, for the state to completely quash any kind of uh, uh, reasonable protest, dissent, petitioning of legislators, um, you know, particularly, you know, where, you know, in this particular case, I don't think they permitted any sort of uh, a reasonable accommodation. So I think that would be an example of something where civil disobedience uh, is justified under the Constitution. Well, thank you. I know that, that was a, uh, it's been an interesting hour. I think we could go on for another hour with so many of the great questions that have been submitted. Um, I do want to give you um, a, a brief chance uh, to give any uh, final thoughts before we conclude uh, today. It's just been a pleasure uh, uh, being with you all and, and my fellow panelists. I think this is a, a great topic, and, and let's hope it's a topic that passes quickly along with the pandemic. Yeah, Joel, thank you for organizing. This has been a very interesting and informative discussion and really privileged to participate in it. Um, like John, I kind of hope this is one that passes quickly, but uh, at the same time, state legislators should look at the lessons learned and realize that the potential for abuse does exist and plan against that potential. And any solution really needs to balance the appropriate responses and the ability of the government as a whole to protect the public health and public safety. And at the same time, this, like I said, this delicate balance of in protecting individual and constitutional rights. It's something that's best done by a combination of the legislature and the executive. And with the occasional input of the judicial branch when um, certain things may step over other rights. Um, so it's just a, a great opportunity for state legislators to take a good, hard look at a bunch of laws that haven't really been updated since the 1970s and prepare for any potential future emergency. And I would just, you know, sort of reiterate a theme. I, I, I think uh, there's a genuine opportunity. I, I, too, hope that this is short-lived, uh, but I think that there's a responsibility for the legislatures as well as for the, the citizens in terms of holding the legislatures accountable to make sure that, uh, you know, that we don't have uh, uh, temporary provisions that were meant to address the, the crisis become permanent in ways that are detrimental, like the rent control provisions in New York uh, or you know, the unconstitutional tax provision here in Ohio. Uh, and it also provides a, a real opportunity to see what worked and what didn't uh, you know, in, in terms of how it is that these states conducted the shutdowns and what checks need to be put into place by the legislature to guide uh, the, the discretion of the governors in the future. Yeah, I think they, you know, the opportunities are so explosive right now. Um, it's, it's easy to um, you know, get bogged down by the direction that we're heading, um, but at the same time, uh, we, you know, we have the opportunity to make fast and far movement. And we're doing that in some areas. And so um, just as much as our, we have so much work ahead of us, um, there, you know, the, that same work is also an opportunity. Um, when I was in public interest litigation a number of years ago and on the front lines in the courtrooms, um, I would always joke with Clint Bullock about how our dream was to put ourselves out of business as constitutional lawyers. And we are pretty far from that right now. I would say our, our workload has really skyrocketed these last few months with all the constitutional challenges that have 
popped up and as quickly as we're navigating those. Um, but you know, the, the more that we do and the more wins that we have, the closer we will get to changing our career paths, which would be a dream. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. I want to thank each one of you on the panel for being here today and to everyone who was uh, listening virtually online. It's a great conversation. I think it's an important one. If you work on the Hill at a think tank or if you have any questions, uh, you can and reach out. You can contact me, uh, joel.griffith at heritage.org. I will connect you with the right people, give you any resources uh, that I can deliver. Um, you'll receive a survey after this event. Uh, please do complete it so that we can continue to make these um, better with each one and uh, we'll give you complete uh, update on any events that are upcoming. So thank you so much and have a great afternoon.